Hey guys, I'm your host Smita Kanturi and welcome to Journey Podcast, your weekly podcast on transformational journeys. Hello everyone. I have Julian Bacchus with me today. She has over 16 years of advocacy experience, both paid and unpaid. She has worked with rape crisis centers in both Illinois and New York. She is currently a victim service specialist with Victim Advocacy Services of Planned Parenthood, Mohawk Hudson INC. In addition to assisting victims through the ER and criminal justice process and offering short-term counseling services, she facilitates five weekly support groups for survivors of sexual violence, servicing both teen and adults. I'm really happy to have you here on the show. Welcome to the show, Jolene. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here as well. Definitely. Please tell us the work that you do initially, and then you connect back with your traumas. Why is this work so important to you? Why did you start this? And what is the actual services that you are providing around? Please. Okay. Um, so like you said, right now, I work as a victim services specialist with Planned Parenthood. And we run a 24-hour hotline where victims can call if they have questions, if they want support, if they need help processing anything. Also, um, the police can um, call that hotline if they have a victim there at the station and they want an advocate to be there with them. We will go to the police station. Um, if a um, victim goes into the ER presenting as a victim of sexual violence, the ER will automatically call our hotline and we will go into the ER and support them through the SANE exam, the police report if they decide to do that, and just provide them with their rights, their options, because a lot of times people are so overwhelmed, they just don't understand what's going on, or they don't know that they have the right to this or that. So we make sure that they um, are aware of everything. um, Another thing we do is go into the schools and do educational programming on sexual violence 101, consent, healthy and unhealthy relationships, We've done child abuse prevention programming. So we've been all the way from preschool to college classes doing that. Um, We also go into campuses. If an assault occurs, we do a lot of tabling to raise awareness. Um, We um, provide training to community agencies, um, law enforcement, um, social workers, um, SANE nurses, we will help do um, different continuing education programming as well. So when you're mentioning that you help these rape victims, let's just say that you got a call from ER or a police that somebody has been a victimized and uh, you wanted to help them. What kind of help in specific that you actually provide? Is that like a therapeutic kind of a help or like, is there anything else that you are doing? So we will obviously go into the ER and we will be there with them throughout the whole SANE exam. So the first thing um, we will do is answer any um, initial questions or concerns they have. Um, We ask if they want to make a police report or not. 
Um, and then we kind of explain what the SANE exam is, what the nurse is going to do, and we make sure that they understand the whole process because it has to be informed consent in order to provide the exam. Um, we'll walk them through the criminal justice process if that is something that they're interested in. So we'll go over, you know, what the steps are, what could happen in one case, what could happen in another case. Um, we also um, do referrals for um, different community agencies. Like I've had um, a client before who did not have insurance and that was one of her main concerns for follow-up care. Mm -hmm. So I worked with her to get her in with the healthcare navigator and get her on a marketplace insurance. Um, we will also do referrals for counseling services. Mm -hmm. um, we do do some crisis counseling. We're trained in crisis work and that kind of thing, but we are not licensed clinicians. So we'll see them initially and try to work with them. And then we always, um, if they need further help, we refer them out to a, a trauma specialist. So how long you help them in this process from the day that you met them? How long will you support it? Really until they feel they don't need us anymore. Oh, okay, okay. We do have um, support groups that um, I run, like you said, I, I've done uh, five different ones, some in um, high schools. Um, I have a journaling support group that I run out of our office and I run a, a support group at a recovery center near our office. Um, so they're able to access that service for as long as they feel they need it. Um, if something comes up even three, four, five years from now, um, they can call the hotline, they can reach, reach out back to me and I will make an appointment with them and they can come in and see us. So there's no like cutoff point. We wanna make sure that they get the services that they need. You also mentioned that you do this sexual abuse training for uh, in schools for the kids as well, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when you are actually trying to teach them about this, there might be kids, I mean, for example, the kids might not be able to tell what happened to them just in case if it has happened on the yeah. day it happened or like two days or like, if it, if it is like they're coming out after hearing you, maybe after 10 days, for example, mm -hmm. after 10 days, if you are taking them to a medical specialist to have them checked, if something happened, there won't be any proofs. You understand what I'm asking? Yeah. So how, how do you help? the kids are like parents of those kids in such kind of a scenario. Is there anything that you actually do there? We kind of help them process that thing. Um, the statistics are horrible. Out of a thousand um, assaults, only six perpetrators will see any jail time. Yes. So it's it's unfortunately just the reality that we live in. Um, so we help them kind of process that. Um, we definitely offer referrals for counseling services if that is something that they need. Um, they are still, you know, have access to all of our services. We work with them 
with um, community referrals, we can do groups, we can um, process any kind of thing that they need, and we can also work with them if needed with the Office of Victim Services, which offers victim compensation um, for victims of crime. And um, especially with the nature of this crime, um, a conviction is not necessary for them to pay out. So um, we can offer that as a service as well. When you're mentioning like it, it's, though it is surprising, it is also interesting. Like why do you think a lot of cases are going unnoticed? It is not unnoticed completely though the there is a victim and the person who actually did that is unlikely to see the jail term, as you just mentioned. So what could be the reason or like, what are the gaps that you have seen personally in your life? Um, a lot of it is just by the nature of the crime and the culture we live in. Like this is something um, that a lot of people still don't feel comfortable sharing or reporting. So a lot of it, just simply goes unreported. So that is that is partly added into that statistic is the cases that there is no disclosure made. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing again is it is such a kind of he said, she said crime and there is not a lot of ways to facilitate getting kind of proof or evidence for mm -hmm. that. And so a lot of times the DA and the police absolutely believe a crime happened. They just can't move forward with it based on the evidence that they have. And a lot of times when people do come forward, it's not necessarily immediately after. It's days after, weeks after, yeah. months after, years after. So a lot of times the evidence is just unfortunately not there. Yeah, please go ahead and give us more information about the work you are doing and, and your backstory for it, yeah. Sure, so yes, we do a lot of um, services for these victims. Um, the reason I got into this work is because I am a survivor myself of childhood sexual abuse. I was abused from the ages of six through 12 by my paternal grandfather. Um, I, again, the same thing, you know, I didn't disclose until six years after it began. Um, and the pediatrician that I went to to get an, uh, an exam after I disclosed did no trauma, but there was no way to completely tie it to my grandfather. Um, a lot of his family um, lied on the stand for him. Um, and I found out afterwards that it had happened to both of his daughters. Um, my grandmother knew and they all suspected that it was happening to me, but nobody did anything or nobody said anything. And then they lied on the stand as well. So he 
he did go to trial, um, but uh, he was acquitted. Um, the judge said that there was evidence that something happened, but there wasn't enough evidence that it was my grandfather who had done it. So I had processed all that, or at least I thought I had, and I ended up taking a woman's studies class my uh, senior, my last semester in my senior year of college. And we were reading Dorothy Ellison's Bastard Out of Carolina. Um, for those of you who haven't read it, it is the story of a little girl who is abused by her mom's um, boyfriend. And um, she discloses and the mom actually favors the boyfriend and doesn't believe the child, doesn't want to have anything with the, to do with the child because she's trying to break up her relationship. So um, it kind of hit me hard and I had an amazing teacher at that point. And so we all had written essays on it and I disclosed my abuse in it and how it had been a really big trigger so I met with her shortly after that, and it was her suggestion to um, try to find a volunteer position at a rape crisis center. So I looked up my local rape crisis center, and literally the day after I graduated with my undergrad degree, I started my, my training class. Mm. And I kind of never looked back. Um, I still had other things in mind. I um, wanted to actually become a high school English teacher, but I, I kept volunteering. We moved a couple times and every time I moved, I found the local rape crisis program and started volunteering with them. And then, um, after about a week of substituting, when I moved to New York, I kind of realized that it just wasn't what I wanted to do anymore. And so I actually found the position with the New York State Coalition Against Domestic Violence and then have just continued from there, but it's always been in the advocacy field. You being in that position, like, yeah, you went to court and the person who did that to you was left free. And whatever the evidence is that you were able to produce, you were not able to produce, but the trauma that you have gone through is real. So what kind of a change that you are trying to bring with your programs in today's life if somebody is into the same path? I just want to be there to support others. I actually had an advocate for me when I was going through the court process. Um, and I still have this very clear memory almost 30 years later of um, going into our pretrial hearing and sitting in there. And it was the first time I had seen my grandfather since I had disclosed. And everything just kind of came rushing to me and I just started bawling. 
So the advocate was able to get me out of the courtroom. We went to the cafeteria. She got me a hot dog and a soda and would just be able to be there and support me, help um, ease my anxiety. And, you know, I was able to um, kind of collect myself and be able to go back into the courtroom. And so I just want to kind of be there for others to help support them, make sure they're on the right path for healing and kind of just not left alone to their own devices. So since you are working with the police or like, yeah, even they are sending uh, the victims to you, was there any changes that you ever discussed with them towards the law enforcement changes? Um, one of the big um, things we have tried to stress with our law enforcement trainings is a knowledge of the neurobiology of trauma. Our body goes through so much when we experience a life-threatening event or something that we perceive to be a life-threatening event, any kind of trauma. And, you know, a lot of times people want to see the quote-unquote perfect victim and they don't understand why a victim will be laughing and joking in the ER. And so we try to kind of show them that, you know, when we experience a trauma, our body is flooded with all these kind of hormones, um, adrenaline, cortisol. So a lot of times it's just that influx of that hormone that creates that. Sometimes they are, you know, bawling and a mess. And a lot of times they're just kind of flat and there's no emotion. But again, that is how the body is trying to protect itself from that threat. Um, so we talk a lot about that. Like, even though they might be acting this way or that way, there's no normal way. And not to kind of discount that, oh, they, they aren't a real victim because look at, they're just fine. Mm. Like, it's not like that. Mm. Um, another thing we try to do is, um, encourage them to give the victim two to three days before having them do a signed statement because a lot of times they need that recovery time for those hormones to kind of calm down um, and their memory is kind of all over the place and that giving them that kind of extra sleep cycles can help a lot of times um, we've actually had a case where the victim was interviewed and had a written statement immediately after the attack. She went straight to the ER. She was in the middle of the crisis and the trauma. Mm. And um, th there were certain things that she had said in the written statement that contradicted things. And so her case was thrown out based on that. But if she had been given that couple days, she would have been a lot more clear headed to kind of put that together. So the medical tests and everything can, can or should be done at the time of it, but for them to actually talk about it, 
you are mentioning right. that they need a little time exactly okay. okay so you also mentioned that you're doing this in schools as i asked before so how how much support that you think that parents should actually give to kids to come out and tell them or like even in your case what was your parents response when you actually mentioned that for the first time um i think it's just a matter of you know being open and communicating with the child uh you know there are age appropriate ways you know i've been talking to my son about consent since he was like 2 years old he gets to decide if somebody wants to give him a hug and we say the same thing to him if you want to give somebody a hug but they don't want a hug you don't get to do that it's their body so i'm just kind of keeping that um line of communication open another thing um we try to um encourage parents to do is give the proper terminology for body parts we've had cases where um a child has repeatedly gone to her teacher and said my grandpa um eats my cookie and so the teacher doesn't think anything of it and the girl says it's a couple more times and she the teacher is saying well tell him to give you another cookie like she didn't understand what was going on and it was at least a month or two later she the parent had come in for like a parent teacher conference and the teacher just kind of offhand is like oh yeah you know she keeps saying this and the mother turns completely white and tells the teacher that the girl calls her vagina a cookie i heard about the same kind of terminology and some yeah. similar kind of a story before with an, with another woman in the in a in a different episode definitely that seems to be very important yeah just giving them and it gives them also the ways to disclose to you if they know the words and know what to say they're more comfortable saying it so yeah what kind of a support the parents should actually give like for for example they don't understand what's happening like the way the teacher responded she don't right. know the words this even the parents know the words like right they might be understanding that is something happening or they might not understand what support they should give if they don't understand uh, versus if they understand i think um the biggest support they can give is just believing the child you know this is not something that kids just make up and so just supporting them with that we're saying i believe you you know i'm going to be there with you you know we're going to do what we can to fix this and then you know taking those steps talking to their pediatrician talking to a cps worker i know a lot of times people are afraid if they get cps involved their kids are automatically going to be taken away um but you they see that you're 
doing the right thing that you're trying to assist the child and take care of that they're not going to take the child away cps actually uses taking away the child as a very last resort and only in extreme cases and i think that's a big myth that we need to kind of dispel and let parents know that you have this as a support too mm. they have resources that they can put together for these parents and the kids for example if the abuse happened at one time and it may not be like a long time like expressing that to a parent and parent did not understand but the kid is still going through the same thing day in day, day in day out or like yeah weekly once whatever that frequency is i don't, I don't even want to get the get to the frequency but if you are taking the child to a pediatrician and have them checked to like a basic body checkup mm -hmm. were there any scenarios that uh, the doctors might have missed to see this i don't think so i think it's just a matter of you know, keeping that line of communication open so the child is comfortable talking about at all these different things. They're comfortable saying the words. They're they know that these people are safe. Um, I think pediatricians do a really good job of trying to keep an eye on things and noticing when there are red flags and kind of checking in on that. Mm -hmm. So you are mentioning like yeah, if the doctor is involved, there will be a definitely a red flag that can be passed. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, they're pretty, for the most part, um, they're pretty good about that. So how often do you get calls for your call center? Uh, how how many people that you have helped or like involved with? Um. It can vary. There are days that I'm on call that I'll get no calls. And then there are days where I will have four or five calls. Um, I know in previous years, like when we've done our year end numbers, um, just in um, my two counties, Goharie and Schenectady, um, we serve over 800 kids, adults, men, women, girls, boys. Yeah. So we get called a lot. Are you the only person working with this hotline thing or like do you have a team of people that supports you with other things as well? There is a team of, of us. We in our, our two county area, there are five of us that take hotline calls. And so we all kind of take a day and then we rotate weekends. Oh, okay, okay. This is all like a volunteer work that you are doing, I suppose. Um, this is paid staff. We do have a couple volunteers. Um, right now we're trying to boost our volunteer program to kind of give our paid staff a little bit of a break. Mm -hmm. So when the call comes in first, like, where do you start the conversation? Um, well, it depends on what it is. Um, so if it's like an ER call, we will just very quickly get um, 
victim's name so we know where to go when we get there um, and the age. And I usually ask if there is a sane nurse that is coming so I know kind of what my night is going to look like. Mm -hmm. Um, So um, once that happens, we get it, I get in my car and get to the hospital. Um, If it's just kind of a regular phone counseling type hotline call, I usually start off by introducing myself, explaining that what they tell me is confidential, except in the case if I if I think that they're going to harm themselves or someone else, then I have to break confidentiality. And then I will usually just start by asking if they're in a safe space right now. And then um, what led them to call in the hotline and what can I do to help them? And then we kind of let the conversation flow from there. And there'll be some calls that are just, you know, quick 15 minutes long um a lot of times people um will call in and they'll have questions like is this sexual assault or is this really you know rape or something like that other times we have hour hour and a half long calls where we're just sitting with them processing giving them coping skills and working with them so that they can finally be okay by the time that they are off the phone. And then we you... usually follow up if um, if they want us to. Oh, okay, okay. So when you're mentioning at times you might even take like more than one call, how do you process yourself taking all that information by end of the day? Definitely I'm guessing like all these things will be in your head. So how do you process it? Yeah, um, and I'm big with this with my clients too. I always talk to them about it's all about self-care. A lot of times I will, obviously depending on the time of day or whatever, I will take a walk just to kind of clear my head. Um, There have been times where as soon as I've come home from a call or um, finish the shift, I will take a shower and just kind of sit in the hot water, let that relax me and kind of wash all that away. Um, I also have, um, and my husband laughs at me, I also have these um, gemstone bracelets, which are quartz and black obsidian. And um, they're used for protecting your energy. And so I have those bracelets on only when I'm on a on call shift. And when I'm done with my shift, I'll take them off and put them away. And so that's kind of a signal to me and my body that this is over. I'm done for right now. And I, I still have that sense of that kind of force field percep- um, protection of the gemstones. It's interesting you mentioned about your husband, like how good is the support system at home for you to do this kind of a work, volunteering, and you helping like a lot of other people? It's just not about the support, but what do they feel about it? Um, He is amazing. I actually don't think I could do what I do without him. Um, He's been very supportive. 
he always um, comes to any of our awareness events and he's always helping out with that. Um, he kind of lives vicariously through me doing good. Like it's his doing good for the community as well. Um, he is the reason that I can do the work that I do and we can kind of still have the life we have because he actually makes about double, actually over double what I make. Um, unfortunately, in this line of work, you're not in it for the money. Yes. But, you know, his do, working hard and doing the work that he does and making the money he does makes it a lot easier for me to stay at that pay rate and do this pay that I do. Um, he's always really good about, you know, when I'm coming home from a call, asking me if I need anything. He's like, do you want something to eat? Do you want something to drink? Can I give you a hug? Um, obviously, with a young son, my son is seven, I couldn't do this either <laughs> without him, you know, making sure that my son is picked, our son is picked up at school or just being taken care of while I'm out on a four, five, seven hour call. Once this is all done, you are mature enough to understand what it is. Though uh, your uh, grandfather is not being like actually had any jail time or any kind of a punishment, did you ever got a chance to go back and tell him how did that made you feel or like what kind of a trauma that you have gone through? People talk about like yeah, forgiveness and all those uh, things. So have you had a closure for that? In a way, um, he actually um, died um, a few months after the acquittal. Um, he was an alcoholic, which oh. is also part of the excuse and everything. Um, but he ended up with cirrhosis of the liver. Um, so I never really got to even do like a victim impact statement in court or never saw him outside of that. Um, but um, as part of my journaling, I um, wrote a letter to him. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, he's not going to read it, but it was a sense of closure for me just kind of getting it out mm -hmm. on paper. Um, so that was definitely a catharsis. You mentioned like yeah, a lot of your family, though they took the stand, they all lied for him. Did you ever get to talk to them? No, um, I actually um, cut off all contact with my father's side of the family. Um, once I, was, I just, I didn't think I could handle that. I wanted the toxic people out of my life. I mean, I, I knew that my aunts were victims as well, and they had their own demons as well. My aunt was a drug addict and alcoholic as well. And, you know, so I had that kind of sympathy, um, but just learning that, you know, my grandmother knew it had happened to her daughters and did nothing. They all suspected it was happening to me and did nothing. They didn't try to protect me. They didn't try to warn me. Nobody said anything to my mom. Um, so I just, 
I felt it was easier to slow. Um, well, first, to any survivors out there, I want to say I see you. I believe you. It wasn't your fault, and you are not alone. That is um, so important when you say like this wasn't your fault. Yeah, because a lot of times we get that shame and guilt that somehow we did something wrong to deserve yes. that. That that is there with a lot of people. I have heard it myself from a very too many people actually. Yeah. 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 Please go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Um, our our hotline um, is uh, area code five one eight three four six two two six six and anybody can call that hotline you know we'll get you to the right resources if you're not in new york state um but anybody feel free to reach out um i also do have sort of a little plug um but i run a journaling blog um for survivors and it's um journaling for healing dot blogspot.com and every week I will post a journaling prompt I'll also post my response to it um, people are welcome to um, comment and post their responses if they want it's obviously not a requirement but they can take it and do it on their own um, I also do kind of a self-care um activity type thing um every sunday to prepare for the week ahead and then wednesday is kind of a resource day and i'll put in podcasts books um coping strategies um apps that i think are really helpful um all to support uh survivors do you take any break at all <laughs> One of my um, co-workers, actually my supervisor, has nicknamed me the Energizer Bunny. Because <laughs> you are doing like so many things and you are on calls all the time. I'm like, yeah, when do you get time for yourself? I, I do take some time for myself. I said I am very a proponent of self-care, especially with my clients. So I try to, you know, practice what I preach. So, you know, I'll spend a lot of time with my family. My son is hilarious. So he always brings me joy. And we'll just go out and do things, play board games at home, um, hang out with friends, read. So I do try to take care of myself. Okay, thank you for tuning in. And you can find me on all the socials at Smitha Gunturi and the show notes for any resources mentioned. See you next week. Take care.